I'd like to turn your Bibles to John chapter 2, and we're starting a new series today that's uh, in essence going to take us up to Easter. We're going to shift gears a little bit a, a few weeks before Easter, but uh, uh, the series is called The Life of Christ, and uh, really where we're going is we're going to uh, talk about some of his, uh, his miracles some of his, uh, some of the parables he told, um, a couple of weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, some of those teachings, and uh, here's the thing: we, we simply want to, or I simply want us to dig deeper into who just who Jesus is and what he he did, not just on the cross, but how he lived his life. And there are lessons along the way. It was funny; one of my friends a few weeks back, we were talking about uh, just the title for this sermon series, and sorry I couldn't come up with anything more creative than the life of Christ, but it, we came close to calling it something else. Uh, as the conversation went, we were talking about some of the early church fathers. We were talking about some of the, uh, some of the historical writings and just how, how amazing they are and how formative they are for our faith. And, that. and what my friend, he, he, said, he said, you know, all those are great, but you know, I just really love Jesus. And I thought it was just a huge overstatement, or I should say understatement, as to, you know, what this is all about. You know, we can go all these different directions, grab all these other things, but when it comes right down to it, isn't Jesus amazing? And there's so much that we can learn from his life. And so that's what we're going to do on this journey over the next number of weeks. And my hope and prayer is that you'll be able to glean from this uh, from week to week. It'll be really formative uh, for your life and maybe even for those around you. Well, in John chapter 2, here we have Jesus uh, at the start of his ministry. And uh, the scene is a wedding uh, with a looming disaster. And I don't know if you've ever been at a wedding with a looming disaster before, but there's a, a level of anxiety that is there. Maybe it was a, an outdoor wedding with rain clouds that were starting to form. Um, or maybe uh, there was something, maybe there were a couple of ring bearers and they were brothers, you know, maybe even worse, twin brothers. And they, you know, the, the potential for them starting to hit each other with the, the pillows with the rings on them, you know, uh, that was very uh, great. Or whether, the, whether or not the, the flower girl would get lost coming down the aisle. Um, stopping to smell the flowers uh, more than she was to deliver the flowers. Um, Whatever it is, uh, a looming disaster at a wedding is never good. Uh, Dan and I were married, uh, you know, centuries ago, and uh, at least I was. She wasn't. She's younger than me. But uh, we had a, a setup in our in our church at the time that was much like this. Uh, and when Dana got up onto the platform, um, she, she had a really long cathedral-length veil. And women, you know what that is. Men, I'll just say it was really long. Okay, so she had a, a, her veil, and as she was standing here, her veil uh, covered the stairs going down onto onto the main floor. Well, we had our flower girl and ring bear up on the platform, and their cue was as we were to come up on the platform, they were going to go and sit down uh, with the parents uh, uh, for the rest of the ceremony. So it, it all looks good on paper, right? You know, you're drawing the X's and the O's, and you're, you, know, you go through the rehearsal, and it all works great. Well, during the wedding, Dana gets up onto the platform, and Cameron, our ring bearer, gets down to the bottom stair, and he gets his feet caught up in Dana's veil. 
He's still on the bottom step. He's not on the ground yet. He's still on the bottom step. And we didn't see this until later when we were watching the videotape. And yes, it was a v- videotape, a VHS. For those. That just tells you how long ago we got married. So we saw it later and we're like, oh my goodness, we were this close to disaster because she's sitting there and she said, you know what? I felt something tugging on my head and I was starting to go backwards. And we, we have four stairs here. Our church, we had six stairs. So it was going to be a long way down for Dan. Well, at the very last minute, Amanda, our flower girl, comes and sweeps Cameron off of his, Cameron off of his feet and goes and takes him and sits him down, crisis averted. Well, we have here in the story of Jesus a looming disaster. A looming disaster. Take a look at uh, John chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 1. It says, the next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Now, I I told people in the first service, uh, my mother never said this. I just, you know, I don't know, just for the record... um, Dear woman, that is not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And I, I can't, my mind just kind of goes wild into this situation. It's kind of humorous to me when I read it. But anyway, so Jesus is sitting in my, saying, my time has not come. And, and Jesus' mom just says, tells the disciples, I'll just do whatever he's, you know, because his time has come. Anyway, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of the ceremonies. So the servants followed the instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. This, and then John adds this, he says, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee is the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Have you ever had that thought? If only Jesus would show up and perform a miracle. If only right now, Jesus would show up and like do something spectacular in the supernatural realm. Uh, I, I might be the only one because nobody's nodding, but uh, I, I have that feeling often. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be amazing? Uh, I've told you, I grew up in a, a very non-Christian uh, environment, uh, non-Christian uh, city where I was living, and, and friends of mine knew I, I went to church, knew that I was a Christian, and they always had tons of questions. Um, they also knew that God was a, a God who did you know, supernatural things and, and uh, performed miracles and, and all of this. And so they were curious and they kept asking me if I could ask Jesus to do something miraculous. And it was kind of like, okay. And I tell you, there were times over and over and over again where I'd be sitting there going, okay, God, it's time. Um, wouldn't it be great? And, and I'm thinking, you know, evangelistically, you know, wouldn't it be amazing on a sunny day if God made it snow in July? You know, how ma- think of how many people would turn their lives to Christ if, if just a supernatural thing happened when Darren prayed. 
You know, it made sense to me anyways. It might have been selfish. But at the same time, you know, have you ever had that thought? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus showed up right now and just did something absolutely phenomenal? And well, here was one of those times. Jesus does show up. And Jesus does something amazing. And John calls it a sign. He calls it a sign. Well, it's, it's interesting. We'll talk about this in a little bit more <clears throat> detail about a sign leading to something, a sign pointing to something. And all throughout Scripture, when Jesus performs miracles, it's always pointing. It always has some additional meaning to it. But a lot of theologians, a lot of scholars, they, they have trouble with this first miracle of Jesus's because um, it, it doesn't seem urgent. It doesn't seem urgent. You know, you think about it, some theologians even call it a luxury um, uh, miracle. It wasn't, you know, nobody's bleeding, nobody's dying, nobody's dead. Um, there's no one who's blind um, or lame. There's no leprous person on the scene. Uh, it just seems like, hey, they're having a party. They ran out of something to drink. So, all right, Jesus, it's time to, you know, perform a miracle. <clears throat> or so it seems. What's really going on here is, is a need being met. And let me explain it to you in, in, in that we think that <clears throat> our weddings nowadays are pretty elaborate. Um, you start watching uh, you know, TV, TV shows, Dana from time to time watch that, say yes to the dress, and I'm just going, they paid that much for a dress? Like, oh my goodness. Um, you know, it's amazing how much people spend on weddings today, but it, it, let me tell you, it's nothing compared to what they did back in Jesus' day. You see, in Jesus' day, when there was a wedding going on, the wedding celebration, the party after, lasted seven days. Seven days. Anyone have a daughter who's going to be married in the next 10 years? Um, anyone? No one here? In the, okay, so a daughter. Okay, think about it. You're no longer responsible for just a reception. You're responsible for seven days of party. And in that seven days, you are responsible for every single one of your guests and all of their needs for all of those seven days. Yeah, my guest list just went down to one. <laughs> all right? Could you imagine? Seven days. And so that makes sense. You put it in context. So there's supposed to be like whining and dining and celebration for seven days. And we're not told exactly how many days have gone on. This could have been the sixth day. This could have been the first day. We're not sure. But, but nonetheless, they run out of wine. And at that point, that is massive uh, no-no. Um, not just the one, but you are no longer taking care of your guests. You're, you're no longer meeting their needs. And this isn't just disappointment. This is social, uh, this is socially un inappropriate. Um, and as a result, if the, if the master of the sermons and, the, and the, the, the father wasn't going to supply and meet the needs of the, the guests, there would be massive repercussions socially within the community to the point where they would probably be ostracized, they would probably be blacklisted, and in the social and even economic uh, um, times that they were in, that probably would have led to uh, financial ruin for the family eventually down the road somewhere. So that said, this might seem like a, a luxury miracle, but in, in fact it's not because Jesus is stepping in and he's meeting a very real need. He's providing for them. Well, as I mentioned, John calls this a sign, a first of the signs. 
And when I see a sign, I, whether it's on a road or in on a door or something, it means something. It has a meaning to it. And that's really why John uses this word. This, this was the first of the signs. Uh, signs and a wonder, a miracle that takes place. And it has meaning to it. And that's what we're going to look at through this because it reveals truth. Here, Jesus was revealing his glory. As a result, it says that the, the disciples put their faith in him. This was the first time that this took place, but this was a sign with meaning. It had, had repercussions and it had an emphasis to it. Well, I want us to look at this sign. I believe there are a number of things that, that are revealed to us in this story for today, revealed to you and revealed to me. And the first one is this, that Jesus came to solve your problem. Jesus came to solve your problem. You might say, well, well Darren, um, okay, um, that sounds a little selfish, it sounds a little, you know, but, but why do you say that? Well, let me just first say that Jesus has the capacity to meet the need that you have. Jesus has the capacity to meet the need that you have, and as a result, he meets the need. You know, I can Google all sorts of things that I don't know how to do. You know, you just YouTube it, and I can figure things out. We laugh around here at the church because Pastor Barry knows how to do 110 million things, and, he, and I say, how do you know how to do it? Yeah, I YouTube it. You know, we can figure things out. You know, there's a lot of things that I can do. I can, I can do some minor electrical stuff at home. I can do some plumbing. I know how to fix my, my sprinkler heads at home when I run over them with a lawnmower. You know, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I got those skills down. But you come to me with your transmission in your car, like, like not working, I'm not your man. I don't know. I can't YouTube or Google that enough to figure out how to fix your transmission. Um, even more so, you come to me and you say, hey, Pastor Darren, my heart's failing. I need an open heart surgery. I need some stents put in. I'm not your man. Uh, seriously, you know, I got, you know, I got some scissors and a pocket knife in my, in my uh, office, but you don't want me fixing your heart. Just, I can't do that. Well, well, here's the thing. Jesus can meet your need, and Jesus wants to meet your need, and Jesus has come to meet your need. Jesus is the one who is fully capable to come and to meet your need, the need that you have. He's here to solve your problem. Third chapter of John says, God so loved the world that he did what he gave his son. He didn't give his son because he was going to just take a, a try at it. He just might be able to you know, figure it out if he's, if he, you know, he learns enough. No, he sent his son, Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was going to come and give his life so that sin would be paid for and you and I would be set free from sin and our problem would be solved. He, he goes on, John goes on to say, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to do what? To save the world. Later on in, in John 10, he says, Jesus came to bring you life, life to the full. And it's not just a hope. It's not just Jesus going, okay, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Hope so, hope so, you know, hope it works out. No, he came to fulfill it. He came to do it and has accomplished that. Sin atoned for, corruption defeated, brokenness mended, a world spinning out of control, brought back under the authority and, and the kingdom of God himself. Do you know that from the time that sin entered the world, this world is not getting better. In fact, it's getting worse. It is in a process of degradation. 
And Jesus came even to meet that need and to fix that need. He's won the victory over death, over hell, over the grave. And one day, his kingdom, God's kingdom will rule and reign even physically over this earth once again. Jesus makes things better and he improves things. He has come to solve your problem. And it might be nice to just write that down, but I want you to let that sink in. It's not just a pithy saying. It's not just something that, that we just, it's not a throwaway remark. Oh, isn't that nice? Jesus came to meet your need. No, he came to solve your problem. And if you don't believe you had a problem, we need to go back to, to step one. And, and we need to come to the understanding that each and every one of us has a problem. It's called a sin problem. We don't have a relationship with God because of that. But Jesus came to solve that problem. It leads us into the second revelation. You notice the props that Jesus enlisted. Um, it says he, he got these six jars or these, these vats, and, and they're pretty big. They, they're 20 to 30 gallons each. He, he had them fill them with water. And we're told that these weren't just any jars. In fact, they weren't wine jars. You know, you think about it, you're sitting around, around a party and you've run out of wine, what do you do? You go, you know, if you're going to fill something with wine, you go back to the wine jars or the wine bottles and you're going to fill those with wine, but that's not what Jesus does. And we kind of skip over this and we kind of go, okay, well, he just got, maybe it was, he wanted to have a lot of it. Well, that's one thing. But the other thing is there was, there's another part to this sign. You see, these, these jars were for what? We're told they were for ceremonial washing. This, this idea that, that people needed to be physically clean in order to participate in the party that was going on. And what Jesus was saying was, I'm going to use these things that are a restriction and a form and a format in order for you to get into the party. I'm going to use these things and I'm going to renew them and I'm going to reuse them to prove to you that there is new wine that's coming and you don't have to go through the physical washing anymore to come into the party. See what's going on? And in essence, he's going, he's grabbing a bathtub. He's grabbing, and you're going, ooh, I'm not drinking out of that. Well, you know what? If it's the best wine in the world, you're drinking out of it. And he transforms these things, and he says, you know what? This is not the way that things are going to work anymore. And you see, these, these vats were symbols of the Old Testament law. They were symbols of the form and the format and the requirement that needed to be stepped through these hoops that needed to be jumped through in order to get into this community of a party. And Jesus was saying, you know what? I'm going to use those very things and I'm going to turn it upside down. I'm going to show you what I have come to do. And he transforms the contents. He fills them to overflowing. You see, Jesus, for him, it's not about the washing, it's about the celebrating. For him, it's not about the ritual, it's about the relationship. For him, it's not about the rules, it's about me loving you, he says. And it's not about, it, about the doing, it's about the new covenant. He says, I'm going to bust through all of these things, that, that, that these restrictions and stuff, I'm just going to blow them away. And what does he say? He says, I've come to adjust your focus. I want you to think differently about things. You know, you see, we get so caught up in what we see and what we perceive in the physical realm, and we consider that to be the absolute truth. 
We see things, our, days, uh, our day-to-day lives are full of stuff. We, we go through our, our, our routine, we go through our weeks, we go through all these things and it becomes the context of how we, we assimilate things. What Jesus is saying here is what you see in the human realm, there is much, much more to it than what you see. And it's almost like, you know, Dan and I bought a house uh, when we first moved to Illinois, and it was this old 1950s bungalow, and, and uh, the old people who lived in there before had put this kind of minty green, almost shag kind of model carpet in it, and it was just like, oh my goodness, this isn't us. The first thing we did when we, when we closed on the house was we ran into the house, and we pulled up a corner of the carpet and looked underneath, and it was like, ah, epiphany, because there was beautiful hardwood floors underneath. Just like, yes, and I tell you, we pulled out those. But it, it, when I was thinking about this, that's a picture that came to mind, is we see what's on the surface. We see in the physical and human realm, and yet from time to time, God wants to come in, and he wants to pull up the edge of the carpet, and he wants to reveal to us what's going on in the spiritual realm. He wants to show us, just to open up a corner of heaven and go, you know what? What you see and what you perceive and what you know to be true, that this is a table, this is a floor, that this, yes, that's true, but there's so much more that is going on in this place than just what you see and you experience and you perceive in the human and physical realm. There's so much more to life, and yet we get so constrained by simply what we see and what we hear and what we perceive here and now. Well, my friend said this, well, I see this, and this is happening in the world, and we go, oh my goodness, that must be absolute truth. Well, Jesus is saying, no, uh, 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 I don't want you to think so quickly on that. Take a look at 2 Kings chapter 6. There's a story of Elisha, and uh, <clears throat> in verse 15, Elisha has his, uh, has his assistant with him. It's the prophet of the Lord. And, and the Arameans don't like Elisha because he's outing them wherever they go. He's kind of one step ahead of them. And so they're like, okay, um, something's going wrong. Who's, who's the snitch? Obviously it's Elisha, so we're going after Elisha. So they go after Elisha and they surround him. And there's Elisha and his buddy, you know, his little assistant. And they're surrounded by the, the Arameans. And um, I can just see the, the, the scene where um, the, the assistant taps Elisha on the, on the shoulder and, and Elisha says, yes, what is it? And, and the assistant says, um, we are surrounded. We are doomed. Um, at last count, he's got his calculator, maybe his abacus out, and he's sitting there and he's counting. And he's going, he's counting, and it's like a 360 around them. Okay, there's all these people and they are out for blood and we're doomed. We're dead, 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 dead. Uh, there's no half dead, you know, quarter dead, you know, portion of being dead. We're dead. We're going to die. And, you know, he's writing out his last will and testaments, and Elisha says, no, that's not the case. And, he, and his assistant is saying, um, no, that's the case. Because I can see it. It's right there in front of me. I can see the numbers, and it's a whole bunch against two. We're doomed. We're dead. Take a look. Verse 15, when the servant of the, Lord, uh, of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, chariots everywhere. Not just in some places, not just behind a bush here or there. They're everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. So it wasn't just a tap on the shoulder. What are we going to do? It's, he's freaking out. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him. He's going, what? Don't be afraid? Don't tell me not to be afraid. But he says, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Pause. Are you on drugs, Elisha? Because what I'm counting and what I'm counting, 
I don't know what sort of math, this new math that you're in, but it's just not working for me, right? Elijah's just told him there are more on our side than on yours. And they're in the human mortal realm. That is true, that there are, uh, there are not as many on their side, but Elisha isn't just seeing what's in the mortal and human realm. He goes on, verse 17, then Elisha prayed, O Lord, notice he doesn't pray, O Lord, you know, bring the troops. What does he say? He says, would you just peel back a little bit of that carpet, peel back a little bit of the corner of this mortal realm, and I pray that you would reveal to my assistant what's going on in your realm, in the spiritual realm. Open the eyes, his eyes, and let him see into this in the supernatural realm, and the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Now that's what I'm talking about, right? In the human realm, how often in your life have you just looked in the, in the human realm and you've gone, well, this is it. I'm doomed, I'm dead, I'm this, I'm that, I'm whatever, and yet you're failing to look behind into the eternal realm, into the supernatural realm of where God lives and where He dwells and where He does His work. And you know what? You ask Him, He's going to show you that. Another place, it was um, on, on Resurrection Day, the women go to, the, to the, the tomb and they are looking physically they're looking physically. They're in the human realm. And what does the angel say? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking here in this, in this physical place for something that has taken place supernaturally? I believe the Lord wants to give us supernatural eyes. He wants to, he has come to change your perspective on things. And you might be in the middle of a real rough patch of your life. You might be having a really great time. You might be just uh, soaring and just at cruising altitude in your life. Wherever you're at, you might have some business decisions, some relational things going on. Um, you might just be dangling on a thread. You might feel like you're drowning today. Wherever you're at, I want to encourage you to take a step back and, and simply ask the Lord. You can even do it right now. Lord, can you give me your eyes in this? Give me your perspective, your wisdom, your understanding. What is truly going on in the supernatural realm, not just in this mortal, human, physical realm? I believe the Lord has come to give that to us and to grant that to us. The appropriate behavior. The appropriate behavior in all aspects of our lives. It's a solution for parenting fear. Any parents here ever, ever succumb to fear? of what might be or what could happen or what maybe is happening? How about friendship anxiety? How about social worry? Just this, oh my goodness, what's going on? How about marriage and relational paranoia? You know, Jesus came to provide a peek into the realm of heaven, what's truly going on behind the veil. Jesus came to adjust your focus. Finally here, I believe the last thing that Jesus came to do in this setting was um, evidenced in the product that was produced. What was produced? You notice that uh, when the wine was brought to the master of ceremonies, he didn't take a sip and go, hmm, that's adequate. Did you notice that? He didn't say, hey, that'll do. 
How many of us, we, we were at the point of that'll do? If you got a teenager in the house, there's a lot of that'll do's around, right? Okay, hey, that'll do. Uh, yeah. yeah, I asked to take the trash out and it got about halfway there, that'll do. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of this, it's adequate. And, and I'm sure that would have worked. But here, Jesus wasn't just adequate. He wasn't just kind of meeting the need. There wasn't just 10 bucks owing and he came in at you know, $9.99 or maybe even $10.01. No, he blew it out of the water. He overproduced what was needed. It was funny, um, last night Gabe and I were on our way back from Metroplex and we stopped in at Kroger. Um, um, he's got this hankering for Kroger sushi and it actually is pretty good. But anyways, I'm making you hungry, aren't I? But uh, we go into the flower department, the floral department, which is right next to the bakery department. And I tell you, they must have had three million Valentine's cupcakes in that place. Like they were stacked up like everywhere. It's like you're going into this cave of cupcakes. And they're all pink and, and uh, pink and red and in all festive colors of, of Valentine's Day. And we're going in. I'm going, man, look at all these cupcakes. You know, if I was taking Dana out for dinner for Valentine's Day, I don't think I'd get her a pallet of Kroger cupcakes. Okay? I love you so much, I'm going to get you these mediocre cupcakes that are mass-produced. And there was like you know, 30 million pallets sitting there and I picked up one for you. That's not what I'm going to do. We're going to go out for dinner. We're going to have this nice romantic, you know, if I'm going to give her a cupcake, that's not her love language, but if I were to give her a cupcake, man, I would go up to a bakery. I would like have like this exotic flower flown in from, you know, India and, you know, and have the, the baker make this the cupcake and, and she's Dutch, so I'd have Dutch chocolate flown in and we'd make it up and it would be the best, most amazing cupcake. And I'd say, here's, oh, you know, the angels are singing as, uh, as I'm giving her this cupcake. <laughs> and here's the deal. That's what Jesus was doing. He wasn't going, hey, I'm going to do this mass-produced sort of thing, which is kind of, okay, whatever it'll do. No, he's going above and beyond. Why? Because his love goes above and beyond, and he's doing immeasurably more, and he's just blown out. Not because he has to, it's because he wants to. And this is the character of God and the character of his son, Jesus Christ. And so often we just slough it off and we go, okay, well, you know, I guess it's just going to be inadequate. No, he's a God who loves to do way, 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 way more. Jesus is one who has come to do much, much, much more. And that is the third truth that I want us to hone in. Jesus has come to exceed your expectations. And you're sitting there, you're probably going, but I don't deserve it. Or maybe you're thinking on the other hand, well, maybe I do. No, but most of us guaranteed we're sitting there. I don't know about it. I feel awkward even saying that. But can I just give you permission to stand there and let God bless you? Now, I know we're on the verge and we're on this tipping point of getting into that, hey, name it and claim it and prosperity and stuff, and I don't want to go down that road. But, but so often we, we, we are so afraid of talking about that that we don't talk about it at all. That God is an extravagant God and His Son, Jesus, came to bless each and every one of us in such an extravagant way. And He wants to bless you and bless me beyond what we deserve. 
You know, it'd be one thing to say, okay, here's where I'm at and, and you know, I've done this much work and, and this is what, you know, the pay is and this is what the equal is and this is where we're at. And well, in a few weeks time, we're going to talk about the, the parable of the workers. Well, what about the workers that showed up just near quitting time? You know what? It wasn't a, hey, you worked five minutes, here's five minutes pay. No, the character of, of God is, once again, the sign that Jesus came to reveal was his father is one that goes, you know what? <clears throat> here's the kingdom. I want to bless you. I want to pour out my spirit on you. I want, to, I want your life to be so full. I've come to give life, life to the full. I have a, a, a buddy, his name's Terry. He lives up in Vancouver. We were, we were college buddies. And we didn't go to the same college, but we were buddies in, you know, while we were going to college. And uh, we would always uh, go out for dinner. And we were, we were broke. We didn't have money. And, and oftentimes we'd have this conversation. Um, two young, you know, starving college kids going out for something to eat. And we'd, we'd have to make a determination. Do you want something good to eat? Or do you want a lot? And those are mutually exclusive when you're a college student. <laughs> Okay, you're either going to have something good or you're going to have a lot. And, you know, sometimes we'd go one way, sometimes we'd go the other, but we had to make a decision. Well, isn't it amazing that with Jesus, you don't have to decide. The wine that was supplied, there were 180 gallons. Now, we don't know how many guests were there, but 180 gallons is 180 gallons. It's not like in biblical times, 180 gallons was, you know, less than it is today. It's 180 gallons of the best wine in the land. It's quality and quantity, and it's, it's the heart of God. It's a, John says it's a sign that teaches of, us about the heart of God that says, you know what, come on, come on. You guys are getting so hung up on the little bits and the this and that, and what is appropriate and what's, what's inappropriate. You know what, just set that aside and enjoy the presence of the Lord and enjoy his blessings in your life. Can we just do that? And this is what it's all getting caught up. Acts chapter 2. It says, in the last days, God says. And you heard people say, God says, and I believe it. <laughs> God says, what's he going to do? I will pour out my spirit on all people. You notice he doesn't say dose out, meter out, um, distribute pours. The last time I checked pour, he pours. Pouring is pouring. You know, if I wanted this full without getting the outside wet, I probably wouldn't ask somebody to pour something in it. I'd probably take it up and just try to, you know, maybe, you know, dose some in there. I don't know what the word would be. But you talk about pouring, it's going to get the inside, yes, but it's going to get the outside. It's going to get my arm wet. It's going to get this wet. It's going to probably get some people in the front row wet. It's going to, you see what I mean? He says, I'll pour out my spirit. And I think that's something that for us to get into our minds that as the Lord wants to work in us and through us and he wants to bless us, there is an abundance that goes even beyond your life. And you've heard me say this before, your life then becomes a blessing to others around you. Where you live, where you work, what you do, what you say, the places that you, you go to and from in this community, it changes other people because the Holy Spirit is being poured on you and it's having an effect on you. 
He says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. <laughs> it's not going to be restricted. And I love it when that corner of the carpet gets raised and, and heaven touches earth. We get to see just a little bit of what's going on in that heavenly realm and in that, in that eternal realm and in that supernatural realm. And I believe that that's what he wants to do for each one of us. Would you bow your heads close your eyes?